Welcome to the Ninja Lane Podcast. In this episode, we talk about the new GTX 660 Ti and its performance advantages in overclocking and SLI. We also touch on what makes a review site and how Ninja Lane got its start. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia, and with me today, I have Darren McCain. This month, NVIDIA shocked the world, well, not a lot, by introducing the GTX 660 Ti architecture. And I know that you've had an opportunity to look at those. In fact, you've reviewed a couple cards and done some SLI. So I wondered if you'd had any success as the overclocking element. I did, actually. To give a little background, I reviewed the Gigabyte GTX 680 Ti and also the MSI Power Edition GTX 680 Ti. Mm -hmm. And the differences between these two cards is almost night and day because one of them is based on a reference design and also has a quieter cooling solution on it. Whereas the other one is a custom PCB and comes with the twin Frozier heatsink. Now that's MSI's flagship cooler. So I would expect that to be kind of a monster. How did they work out for overclocking? It worked out really good, actually. Turns out that the Gigabyte card came... Well, I should back up. Both of the cards are factory overclocked. And these are hot clocked. If you remember back from a previous podcast, we talked about the differences between a hot clocked and an actual overclocked view. Video card. That's right. So these are the pick of the pin. They are. Now, it's a little bit easier with the Kepler architecture because it just loves to overclock. But that thing aside, both of these cards come overclocked, and the Gigabyte actually came with a faster clock than the MSI card. But the cooler was not as good? The cooler was designed to be a quiet uh, solution. It's the wind force where they have these two monster fans on here that spin fairly slow. Now that's a good cooler too, but kind of designed with a different target element. It is. It's designed to be quiet. Not necessarily like an OEM sort of quiet, but to be quieter and cool better than the stock cooler that NVIDIA provides with all the video cards. So despite the differences, how do they clock? (laughs) Despite the differences, the Gigabyte card did not overclock as well as the MSI card, and that's partially due to the PCB design. MSI spent a little bit more time with the Power Edition card by adding an extra power phase, adding a little bit of more room to the PCB, and then also adding the Twin Frozier heat pipe system. So, and the, the Twin Frozier has the two 80mm fans on it, but also comes with four heat pipes, and the whole thing is basically a huge radiator. So there's a lot more mass, there's a lot more cooling potential there, and since it has a better power delivery system, it was able to clock a lot better. So give me numbers. How did they do? Well, the standard test bench is an LGA 2011 3830K on an ASUS motherboard. And I was able to put both cards on there and get some pretty decent scores. The reviews are based on stock clocks as they come out of the box. And I run them through the game tests and 3D Mark tests. And then I do a single page dedicated to overclocking, where that's where I'll go and push the cards as much as I can using the stock coolers and any tools that they happen to provide. In the case of MSI, they provided Afterburner, which also allowed me to triple overvolt or basically control three different voltages within the video card. That sounds good. By just changing a little bit of core voltage, I was able to get this card stable at 1170 megahertz, which is actually pretty decent for a 660 Ti. I know because I've read the reviews that that is actually spitting distance from some of their more expensive brethren. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, one thing I purposely didn't put into the review was the Gigabyte GTX 670, because it turns out that that card 
has the same amount of CUDA cores enabled, but it's running at a lower clock speed. And that 660 tie blew it out of the water. That's good to know. And it's a cheaper card. And the amazing part is that the memory controller is only 192 bits. So it doesn't have the same memory bandwidth that the 670 does. Some of that is based on pure computational aspects of the card. So being able to do DirectX 11 calculations and tessellations, stuff like that. That's where memory bandwidth is going to come into play. But when you're just doing raw benchmarks like 3D Mark 11 or 3D Mark Vantage, you don't necessarily need to have that because the core clock is going to be the key part. So put it all in perspective. How does it rank? It ranks pretty well. It's faster than a GTX 580. NVIDIA has been positioning this card to beat this HD 7950, which is the step down from the 7970. But when you have these cards overclocked in some benchmarks, it's going to beat the HD 7970. Which is pretty good. That is really good. Now, in terms of like hardware bot, I put two of these cards together in SLI, overclocked them a bit, overclocked the CPU a bit, you know, because you have to do that for hardware bot. I was able to get gold cups in 3D Mark Vantage and 3D Mark 11. Admittedly, this is kind of one of those participation cups because there's not too many people competing yet. But the interesting thing is looking at what scores are around these scores that I posted. So we had two cards running. There was GTX 680s running an SLI above it, mm-hmm. and there was HD 7970s in Crossfire below it. So it was right in the middle of the mix. Since these are both aftermarket, you know, admittedly high-end cards, how would my money be better spent? Buying a single high-end card like this or grabbing a couple of vanilla cards and going for that SLI performance? Well, that's an interesting question because for about the same money you can get a GTX 680. That's going to give you a lot better performance out of the box. But you could also save a few bucks, get the 660 tie, run that for you know a month, two months, come back and buy another card, put them in SLI, and actually have better performance than a single GTX 680 and spending maybe an extra $100 on the whole setup. So we've talked a little bit about the differences between these two cards. And in my outsider's view, having not tested these in person, these look like two really pretty rockin' cards out there, but they have, it sounds like, very different strengths and weaknesses. You know, how would you choose? You would really choose based on your gaming preference and your system design. You know, to run SLI, you're going to need to have an SLI-comparable motherboard. You're going to need to have something with enough CPU power to really drive the pixels to the card. So you're going to have something maybe Sandy Bridge, maybe one generation back, which would be like Nahalem. Something with some power so that you can get these cards really rocking. If you only have a 775, anything in the 600 series is probably going to be money not well spent. Well, that's good to know. Now, I know you mentioned in the SLI article that one of the advantages, and in the individual articles as well, one of the advantages of these particular cards, the 660 Ti's, is that they have the ability to do three-way SLI. Oh, that's a new thing for this series, too. Yeah, and I'm kind of excited about that, and I know that that's uh, you know something for the near future, but any thoughts on that? That's something that I'm really looking forward to. Based on the SLI scores from the article that I did, we were seeing a 2x performance boost by just adding a second card into the system, and that was using the stock clocks. Now, adding a third card may not get you 3x performance, but it's going to at least give you two and a half. And that's really kind of tasty in terms of getting some really good frame rates. I mean, we had Crisis running almost at 100 frames a second in this 
SLI article. So wow. that's pretty impressive. I should also mention that the 660 tie is one of the few cards, well, all of them, the 600 series, will run 3D surround. So you can run three monitors with this. Nice. If you add another card into it, you'll be able to get better frame rates across the entire screen, whereas you would need to have a faster card like a 670 or 680 to be able to get the same kind of performance. So multiple monitors, superior performance, and all at a real nice stair-stepping price. I can't wait to see it. Dennis, you and I were talking earlier this week about the review sites and how we got started in this, and it occurred to me we haven't really talked a lot about Ninja Lane as a whole, how things got started, and really what we do behind the scenes to keep things going. And I thought this would be maybe a good opportunity to let people pull aside the curtain and see kind of a lot of how that goes on. Wow. Okay, that's going to be quite the subject. So <laughs> what do you want to know? Well, let's give it a go. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about Ninja Lane and how Ninja Lane got started. Okay. Ninja Lane started in 1999. That's when I bought the domain, and it started as a case modding site. At the time, my, I was doing web development as a day job. To better my position within the company, I needed to do something more than just design. So I wanted to do programming. I thought, hey, let's build a website. Pretty logical angle, right? Right. Now, for folks that haven't heard us talk about this before, Ninja Lane doesn't really sound like a hardware site. So we have to say, where does the name come from? <laughs> the name comes from a 1992 Kawasaki ZX7 Ninja. <laughs> That's right. And if you want to hear more about that, of course, there's a pretty good section on the website, the About Us section, that'll, that'll fill you in a little bit more. But maybe more specifically, and to get to that sort of behind-the-scenes angle, <laughs> uh, you had talked about an article that you read early in the formulation of Ninja Lane. Let, let's skip a little bit ahead to uh, that article on review sites. Okay, the article, if I remember correctly, it was from a fellow hardware site, and it was titled, How to Do a Product Review. Oh, sounds and it, good. It seems like a pretty good thing. You know, you type in, I was using InfoSeek back then, but, you know, type in the Google, so we're going to be <laughs> current. It's like, how to do a product review. Say this article comes up, and he started talking about how he would get products sent to him, and you go out to the mailbox and go and check, say, if anything new came, and then something did, he'd bring it in, do his little inspection, take some photos, test it out through that day, and then write up the article, basically their review, how he was using it, what it would be good for, stuff like that. He wanted to have a 24-hour turnaround time. Well, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah, that, that really would be nice. I mean, I try to give myself two weeks because I want to be able to, to get in there, be able to use the product for a fairly long amount of time, find all the ins and outs, find the things that I don't like about it, find the things I do like about it, stuff like that. You know, you want to be able to be fairly knowledgeable in how this particular product works. So I know that he wrote quite a bit about his process for reviewing things, but if I understand correctly, this wasn't really how you got started, though. No, I didn't. It turns out that during, you know, the infancy of Ninja Lane, I was following Kyle over at Hard OCP a lot. Oh, yeah. And I really liked his review style because he was kind of pretty blunt. <laughs> right. And still is. Yeah, and he still is. But he also did a lot of little antics too. So like he had an A-bit board that just died on him and uh, he put it in the barbecue and lit it on fire, which of course, you know, you would get in trouble for doing nowadays. It was the Viking funeral, which I thought was pretty darn cool. <laughs> and then he would overclock video cards and put these massive coolers on there. And back then, 
overclocking was not the same as it is now. He had to get in there and modify the motherboard and companies like Abit and DFI early on would add these controls to the BIOS to allow you to overclock or you'd be flipping switches and stuff like that. And he was kind of on the cutting edge of that. So I was following Kyle a lot and I really liked his review style. Well, he posted a motherboard from Freeway Design in the news and this was a dual socket 370 board. Wow, that'll take you back. And that's Pentium 3 and this was Right around the time that Oscar at ABIT had found out a way to link two Celeron processors together, and these were Pentium 3 Celerons. Intel wanted you to only use one of them, but he figured out, oh, hey, we can link them together and use it on this chipset and use two of them. And that started an entire SMP movement in the hardware community to having dual socket Pentium 3 boards. And mind you, this was before dual core. This was before servers were affordable which they still aren't very affordable, <laughs> but that was the only way he could get more than one processor. Well, he posted this board, and it was a unique design that had the the processor stacked vertically. But the thing I really liked about it was the PCB was red. Oh. And this was back in where you would have, like, these baby puke brown boards, and you have green boards. Uh, everything seemed like it was, well, not meant to be seen for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, this was a red board. I was like, hey, this is awesome. So I scoured the web, found the website. I want to have that. So I was looking around trying to figure out where to buy it. You couldn't buy it in the States because it was only sold in Asia Pacific. Well, I sent them an email saying, hey, I would really like to purchase this. Can I buy it directly from you? Well, somehow the message routed around and it landed in a marketing person's mailbox. And in the footer, it you know, it's, hey, case mods, blah, 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 and my link to my website. He went out, checked out the website wrote me back and said, hey, I checked out your website. I'll tell you what, I'll send you a board if you do a review and post it on your site for me. I'm like, deal, sure, <laughs> send it over. You know, a week later, the board shows up and I'm like, all right, so now I need to figure out how I'm going to do a product review of this. And it turns out it was pretty easy. Just kind of set up the board. I bought the two processors in memory. I followed the hard OCP model, you know, just kind of doing a few benchmarks here and there, a bunch of pictures, talk about the different aspects of it. And I also did an overclocking. It was one of the only Pentium 3 boards that really overclock well, because this was before you could lock the buses. And much like Sandy Bridge and Ivy Bridge, if you overclock the bus too much, it kills all the cards. And this was the same aspect with these old Pentium 3 boards. AGP clocks and the PCI clocks would ramp up with the frontside bus. So luckily I was able to overclock this thing higher than anybody else that I had seen. And it was pretty impressive for a board that you couldn't buy in the States. So really, it all started with just a chance email. It did, and it continued with that. I got involved with a store, an online store, and they needed to have some product reviews. That was how I got involved with Soltec. So my first trip to Computex, Soltec, you know, I stopped by their booth, and they knew about me from the reviews that I had done, and I got in with them pretty well, actually, and they gave me a board my first visit. Really, the, the site started as an accident of... Me just getting a board saying, hey, do this review for us. I really like the process. And that's when I started to branch out and find ways to continue doing it. So I've been doing this since 1999. And one thing that I liked about Darren was that he's been doing this about as long as I have. Yeah, ironically, about the same time. Although I came into things a lot differently than you did. So just for the folks out there uh, that only hear us through the podcast, it might interest you to know that Generally, I uh, 
a pretty knowledgeable hardware guy, although I may play differently on the podcast. <laughs> but I got my start in the gaming world, which is not a big surprise. I actually uh, came up through the LAN party scene where I had kind of started a club and we had grown together as a group. And when I say I started, it was a group of about six of us. And we grew locally to be really one of the largest land parties in the region and one of the largest on the West Coast, which is pretty exciting. Now, that was Boise Fragfest, right? That was Boise Fragfest. And for an Idaho group, we were really very large. My involvement in that particular process was I ran the mic at the events to help keep things moving as sort of a master of ceremonies. But behind the scenes, I was responsible for interfacing with all of the different sponsors in an effort to get products that we could give out as prizes for our tournaments or as, you know, door prizes. So it got to the point where we became sort of famous for how much product we gave out. And as an example, we had uh, maybe one of our largest, if not largest parties, we had over 320 people and we gave out, you know, over 50K in door prizes alone, which attracted teams from all over the Western United States. And we had some really great competitive prizes as well. So we had some awesome tournaments. Now, one of those tournaments you had, just to sidestep a little bit, you had that at the bomb shelter, right? <laughs> yes, we used to go to the bomb shelter. The really big one we did at the at the mall in an, I want to say, Bon Marche space, and we filled that. So anyway, I attracted a lot of attention in the industry for being able to bring these people together and promote their products sometimes six months or a year in advance of an event. So I knew a lot of these sponsors. But as a side, I got kind of involved with case modding. So I was custom painting and custom cutting cases. And part of the reason for that is I like to sponsor case modding competitions. So I was always building cases in an effort to kind of keep those case mod competitions alive locally. And I got the attention of another site, which is Club Overclocker, won the case modding competition. And after talking with Scott, who's one of the founders and owners there, I got involved with that site and was with them for quite some time. And you would just do product reviews for them in terms of were you really centered around like video cards and motherboards or did you, because nowadays a lot of these sites have an editor that just does video cards or mm -hmm. they have an editor that just does motherboards. So in the early days, we didn't have a lot of staff. So we really used it as an opportunity to kind of search out the products that we were really excited about. And Club Overclocker is also an enthusiast-based site, and I'd encourage you guys to go check it out. But Scott, the owner, relocated from this area. It became increasingly difficult for us to stay coordinated and communicated. So I thought I would retire from the scene <laughs> and go back to just being a serious gamer. And as you may have heard from past conversations, Dennis was able to sweet-talk me into coming back around. The lure of the review site is strong. <laughs> <laughs> well, doing product reviews kind of has a couple of benefits. One, you get to use the latest tech, which is really the, the reason I'm in it. Mm -hmm. And for other people, it's the allure of getting something for free or something that you don't necessarily have to pay for. Well, what really got me into it, as silly as it sounds, was I really wanted to be able to always have cutting edge computer stuff. And I needed to find a way that I could afford to buy a new computer. In fact, for a while, I had always a cutting-edge AMD machine and a cutting-edge Intel machine. And one would have NVIDIA product and one would have ATI product. So I'd always have, you know, the most current generations of both of those. And that's not a cheap pursuit. 
No, and it's <laughs> something that a reviewer needs to have because you need to be able to test on multiple platforms. And my early selfishness was I just wanted the best performing game, and some games perform better on one platform than another. And I wanted to compete at the highest level. In fact, I did. I worked for some sponsored teams for a while, and at my peak, it was actually sponsored by AMD. But to stay at that level, you needed every little inch that you could get. Fastest network, fastest frame rates, whatever you could do. So really, when I talk about how important all of these little things are, I'm still really kind of looking at how can I get the best gaming experience. <laughs> as a gaming enthusiast, and with you as, admittedly, a hardware enthusiast, especially with the overclocking aspect, it kind of leads to the question, well, what is the original vision for Ninja Lane? Well, in the early days when I first started, it was the tag, well, I should say the tagline was high-end and hard to get. And that was a direct result of the freeway motherboard that I just reviewed. You mm -hmm. know, it was one of those things you couldn't get in the U.S. It was kind of hard to get. But it was also a high-end board. It was the top of the line that they had sold, dual processor, SMP. And then that transitioned into doing Soltech boards. Now, mind you, the store that I was working with was out of Florida, and they were importing boards directly from Taiwan. That aspect allowed me to get into my niche. And also fueled why I go to Computex every year, so I can meet these people face-to-face. -face. And that interaction is really what led to a lot of the early growth of Ninja Lane, because I was able to work with the people directly from the Taiwan offices, and then they didn't have a problem sending a product directly to me to do a review. I know that the scene has really changed, and a lot of sites are doing that now, so we've had to kind of expand our vision here at Ninja Lane a little bit. And part of that is talking about enthusiast products that are outside of those niches. Yeah, and that also kind of plays on the early theme, you know, high-end, hard to get. Some of these high-end boards are pretty expensive. They're cost-prohibitive for most people. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these products have key features that trickle down to the lower-end lines. So while I might review a Rampage 4 Extreme, the Formula Edition has a lot of the same features in it. So I can still review the high-end stuff, but it will just apply. So one of the things that I've noticed is the web has matured is there are a lot more of these places where you can post your own opinions, you know, like opinions or even in the Amazon comments. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, how has that influenced people and, and why do people go to review sites versus going to these types of sites where you can read about people's comments? Yeah, the user-generated content is what they call it on the web. <laughs> so since that's so prevalent, I mean, really, why do you think uh, hardware review sites exist? I mean, what's their... What's their purpose? Why do people come to them? You know, a hardware review site is supposed to be a place where people can go and get an opinion from the editor, and it's an opinion that they can respect. The marketing departments in the various manufacturers that we work with will go and take those opinions and post them. You know, if you get an award, they might take a quote from the article and post it within that product. So you can say, here's our reviews. A lot of times these are sponsored, of course, by sending a product to you so that you can do a review of right. that product. Now, the user-generated content, like what we see at Newegg and some of the places you mentioned, those are driven either by a person that's really upset or somebody <laughs> that really loves them or somebody that was paid to go and post it. The key thing here is that the human nature of people is that if somebody is upset, they're going to tell you know, 13, 20 people, all of their closest friends, that they don't like this thing. So every bad review you see at Newegg is usually fueled by one person. Now, one positive review is 
one out of a thousand. How many times have you gotten something <laughs> that you really like and then you just keep using it? You're not going to tell anyone about it. It's just it does what it's supposed to do. It sits there in your computer and runs everything. That's true. You have to have a pretty bad experience or pretty good experience to really be motivated to go out and post a comment. That's true. Now, with a hardware review site, we're supposed to be impartial to the products that we're reviewing. Mind you, a lot of these products that we get are, they're not bad products. I mean, it's not in the company's best interest to send you a piece of crap and have you do a review of it and say it's a piece of crap. Well, I think that's a really an important point to make. And I've had this conversation with a couple of the different sites that I've worked with. And that is, why do you really never see a bad review? Well, that's not entirely true. I mean, there is bad reviews out there, but they aren't so common. And a lot of times when you get a bad review, it's because the person reviewing it, it doesn't fit within what they what they like to focus on on their website. Or it happens to not work well with a certain video card that they have, and that might be a bad driver or a bad BIOS or something like that. Mm-hmm. And instead of working with the manufacturer to resolve the problem, they go and air their grievances to their readership and hence get kind of a bad review. Now, since review sites are really a marketing outlet for these manufacturers, the manufacturers look for unique and different sites. And this is where a lot of them strive to be different. They try to focus on certain aspects of hardware. Like, for instance, Ninja Lane, we focus on the enthusiast aspect of hardware. I go and put an overclocking aspect in every one of the reviews. And a lot of times these overclocks are at a competitive level. This is something that you can use for a basis for competitions. You can also see what kind of controls you have for different overclocking aspects of it and why the products do what they do and why they're designed as they are. Well, I think it's not unlike a car analogy that we use fairly often. I mean, we all can go out and drive a car, but really what we like to do is go out and look at what a product can really do. I mean, what's the cutting edge? What's the maximum performance you're going to get out of it? We may never need that, but it helps us to differentiate how good a product really is. Well, there are a lot of review sites out there. So when it comes to the products and the marketing, how do the manufacturers view the sites, do you think? Well, I think they view them differently in terms of what it is that they're trying to market and what kind of voice they're looking for to get out of their product. So for instance, we have an enthusiast website like ninjalane.com. They are going to be looking for the enthusiast aspect of their product review. They may send this to one of the tier one sites like a Nantech, and they're going to get the bare bones. This is the product. This is the screens and the BIOS. This is how many video cards you can put on it. Review done. When they send it here to Ninja Lane, they're going to get kind of that same stuff, but we're also going to do the multi-GPU index. So we're going to assign a number to how efficient it is to run multi-video cards on this board. We're also going to have the overclocking aspect of it. You know, does this work well under phase change? Does it work well with a water cooler or a water chiller? So that's going to be a different voice and a different, it's really a different audience. It's mm-hmm. going to be the audience of the enthusiasts, the people that are passionate about these products, instead of just somebody looking, hey, is this going to be a good product for me to buy? Is it going to blow up in a week? Am I going to have to go to Newegg and give it a bad review because a cap fell off? <laughs> you know, something like that. This is one of the reasons that I like doing product reviews. It's not because I get paid, because really I don't. I I mean, I get the product. I get to keep it and use it in future reviews. But I do this because I like it. I'm very passionate about hardware. I like using new tech. I like being able to tell people about new tech. 
And that's one of the differences about coming to a site like ninjalane.com to read a review versus going to one of the larger sites. Well, that brings us, I think, to our next question. Is it possible to make a living by doing product reviews? And we've talked a little bit about that difference, but I think that we want to save that for a part two. So if you tune in for the next podcast, we'll talk a little bit about the income side of review sites, how to make a living how to create a community, and how to really build the site from your initial success up and how Ninja Lane navigated those waters. So come back and see us next time. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes. If you have any questions, drop by the forums or email us at podcast at ninjalane.com. To stay up to date on the latest at Ninja Lane, please subscribe to our RSS, now available on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, or join us on Facebook. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2012. Thanks for listening.